verse 1 of chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians begins with the words, Now concerning. Now concerning. Which signals that Paul is turning his attention to another topic about which the Corinthians had written him. And this new issue, this new topic is food sacrificed to idols or food offered to idols. And Paul will devote three chapters to this issue. The beginning of chapter 8 all the way through the first verse of chapter 11. So for those of you who were not here last week or for those of you who were and could use a recap, here is what this issue of food being offered to idols boiled down to. There were many religious temples in Corinth, and a common practice in these temples was the sacrificing of animals in order to placate a Greek god. And when they did this, the entire animal would not be burned, and so whatever meat was left would be sold. Some of that meat would be sold to people from the temple to go and eat in their homes, and some for people to eat right there at the temple in banquet halls or in dining halls. Well, five years before Paul writes this letter that we're studying, he came to Corinth, and he came to Corinth preaching the gospel and planting a church. And as the Corinthians became Christians, they stopped worshiping in these temples. But not all of them stopped buying and eating the meat. Some of them did and some of them did not. So imagine a young woman needing to buy food for her family and having two options, basically. She could buy at the market which was very expensive, or she could buy at the temple, which was far less expensive. So for some of the Corinthians, this was not a problem. Go, buy meat at the temple. Eat meat at the temple. The meat, after all, had not actually been offered to a god because these gods that this meat was supposedly being offered to, they don't exist. So it was not a problem for some. But for others, it was a problem. For them, buying that meat from those temples was essentially supporting pagan worship. And buying that meat reminded some of them of their regrettable former way of life. So who is right? That's always the question we want answered. Who's right? Am I right? Are you right? Are the ones who are eating the meat right? Or are the ones who are abstaining from eating the meat right? That was probably, that was probably the question the meat eaters were asking. They're the ones who write to Paul. They're the ones asking, are we right? Are they right? But Paul, he takes his sweet time in responding to them. Remember, three chapters he writes. It sounds like a simple question. A or B? Are we right or are they right? He takes his time 
because the issue is much deeper than who's right. It usually is. In fact, he made clear in the verses that we studied last week, in verses 1 through 6, that those who were right were only doctrinally right. They had the right theology, but they had the wrong attitude. They had full heads, but empty hearts, which is why Paul wrote in verse 1, this knowledge that you have, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So, the issue is disagreement over whether or not to eat meat that had been offered to idols. And Paul's indictment is that the doctrinally mature in Corinth had grown proud and unloving. That is his indictment in the beginning of this chapter. Those of you in Corinth who have your theology right, who have your doctrine right here, you have grown proud and you have grown unloving. And so Paul continues his correction of their behavior in our text today. And as always, our text today comes from this book, God's Word, the Bible, which is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error. That's the way our church's doctrinal statement puts it. It is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. That is how important week to week every sermon's source is. And so we should pray together for God's help. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, as we listen to your word today, will you fill our minds with truth? Will you fill our hearts with love for you and for one another? And will you move our, our wills to love you, to follow you, to obey you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 899. If you're able, I encourage you to put your phone in your pocket, your Bible on your lap. Maybe even more so than usual, it's going to be important to follow along. For most of you, that will mean you'll be most helped by actually putting your eyes on the text that we're reading today. So let's get right to the main point. Let's get right to the main point of Paul's words in these verses, in verses 7 through 13 that we're looking at. To find it, we need to jump down to verse 9. This is the only imperative in the whole chapter. It is the only command, the only instruction in the entire 
chapter. He moves from the indictment of verse 2 to this instruction in verse 9. And so it stands out as the only imperative. It stands out very clearly as Paul's main point. So verse 9, but take care. That is the foundation of the instruction. Take care or be vigilant that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That is the main point of the text. And so because we are committed here to expositional preaching, that has to be the main point of the sermon. We, like the Corinthians, must take care. We must take care that our rights do not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So there are quite a few questions that you probably have. Questions maybe similar to the ones that I had when I first read this text. And they are questions that will be answered in the verses before verse 9 and the verses after verse 9 as Paul is going to explain what he means. But here are three questions, three things that I needed to understand and that I think all of us need to understand if we're going to get Paul's main point and understand this instruction for us. Question number one, who are the weak? Who are they? Who are the weak? Or more specifically, in, in what way are they weak? Question two, what does Paul mean by stumbling block? What does that mean? What does Paul mean by stumbling block? And number three, what rights is Paul talking about? I mean, those are the parts of this main point. These rights, these people who are considered weak, and this thing that is potentially happening, and that is a stumbling block. So we want to understand those, those phrases Paul uses. So let's keep reading the text. Let's start at the beginning of our passage today, up in verse 7. And let's see if we have what we need here. Let's see if Paul answers these questions so that we can understand the instruction that he's giving us in verse 9. So back up to verse 7 now. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. There's the word weak. Paul will use that word five times in this small passage to describe this group. So it's probably a good time to ask our first question. Who are the weak? Well, look at verse 7. They are those who do not possess this knowledge. That is the knowledge of verse 4. Look back up. Verse 4. As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, so this is the knowledge, we know that 
an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So some in the church had that knowledge. They'd heard that. They'd digested it. They'd understood it. They believed it. These idols don't really exist. There's no real existence to them. Others did not understand that yet. Some were mature in their understanding of this, and others were immature in their understanding of this. And those who did not yet possess this knowledge, Paul is going to refer to as weak. And we'll see, this is not Paul bashing on them. This is not Paul talking down to them. In fact, his hard words are not for the weak. They are for the strong in this church. But those who don't yet have this knowledge, Paul does refer to them as weak. Now, in what way, in what way are they weak? They got like little muscles. Are they weaklings? What's he talking about? Or let me ask it this way. What about them is weak? Why does he use this word? Well, he says right here in verse 7. Look at the end of the verse. And their conscience being weak. Their conscience being weak. Look at verse 10 and you'll see the same thing. His conscience is weak. One more time, again in verse 12, their conscience when it is weak. So clearly, isn't that clear? Paul uses the term weak to describe this group of people within this church because their conscience is weak. That's what is weak about them. It's their conscience. So our main point instruction of verse 9 reads like this with this added information. It reads like this. We must take care that our rights do not somehow become stumbling blocks to those who have a weak conscience. How is your conscience today? Is your conscience strong? How is it strong? Is your conscience weak? How is it weak? Do you know what that means? To have a strong conscience. Or to have a weak conscience. Let me give you a formal definition of your conscience. This is from the 18th century Baptist pastor and theologian John Gill. And he gets a little deeper than the little angel on one shoulder and the little devil on the other. I mean, that's your conscience, right? He wrote, The conscience is a power or faculty of the rational soul of man by which it knows its own actions and judges of them according to the light it has. That's a very good definition of your conscience. Our conscience is this power or ability that we have as created human beings by which we know our own actions and judge our actions, whether they're right or wrong, good or bad, and it is according to the light that we have. So your conscience 
Everyone has it, Christian or not. It's part of being an image bearer of God. Your conscience is this God-given mechanism by which you know and judge your own actions. It tells you this is right. And it tells you this is wrong. What pain is to your body, your conscience is to your soul. You touch the hot stove with your hand. And pain tells you this is bad. Don't do this again. Your soul has that same mechanism. It is your conscience. And when you say something you should not say that displeases God. When you do something that you should not do that displeases God. A conscience that is working properly will tell you. In your innermost being that this is not right. This is wrong. It is like a smoke alarm in your soul that goes off when things are not right. And your conscience operates, John Gill says in his definition, according to the light it has. Another word for light is knowledge. Another word for light is truth. Our soul, our hearts, our mind, we need to be, we say things like we need to be enlightened, which means we need the truth of God's word to shine deeply in us. We need more knowledge of who God is and what he has done. And so our conscience that sees and judges our own behavior, it operates based on the light that it has. The more knowledge you have, the more truth you have. The more truth you have, the more accurate your judgments of your own behavior will be. So a strong conscience is an accurate conscience. A strong conscience is in step with God's word. A weak conscience is inaccurate. It's inaccurate. It is out of step with God's word. A weak conscience tells you something is wrong when it's really not wrong. That is why Paul refers to those in Corinth who were not eating meat as weak. As those with a weak conscience. Because their conscience, right? Their conscience was not allowing them to eat this meat. It was telling them that it was wrong to buy and eat this meat. But it wasn't wrong. Here is John Gill's definition of a weak conscience. A weak conscience, which arises from weakness of faith about things lawful and pure, which is soon and easily disquieted, grieved, and troubled, at seeing others do that which it does not approve of. This is exactly what was going on in Corinth. So this conscience that's weak is troubled when it sees others do which it does not approve of, and which at once judges and condemns another man's liberty, or which, 
by the example of others, here's what was happening in Corinth, is easily drawn to the doing of that by which it is defiled, wounded, and destroyed as to its peace and comfort. See, this is exactly what was going on. Exactly what was going on among the weak in Corinth. They lacked light. They did not possess the needed knowledge yet. And so their conscience, it was off. Their conscience was off. It was forbidding them to do something even though God's word had not forbidden them to do it. Now let me just say this right now and very clearly. Paul's direction will not be to the weak to ignore their conscience. I think that's probably what the strong were expecting and hoping for. And it seems to be what they were doing. You can imagine them reading Paul's letter. Ha! They don't even read anymore. They just get to that point, slam it down. We're right. You're wrong. You're being stupid about this. It's no big deal. Why are you acting like it's a big deal? There's not really idols that this meat is being offered to. We are free in Christ. This is a liberty. You are free to eat this meat. What's the matter with you? That is not where Paul goes. He does not try to straighten out their conscience here. He does not and never encourages them to just get over it and to ignore their conscience because their conscience is weak. That is not what you do with a weak conscience. You don't push through and do that which other people are telling you is okay to do. He'll make that point more clear. So that answers the first question. Who are the weak? They are those who are in this church in Corinth who have a, they have a weak conscience. They're not as mature theologically or doctrinally. They haven't been reading their Bible as long. They don't understand and so when they see this meat being bought and eaten, and when they consider buying and eating this meat, everything within them rises up and says, this is wrong. But they're weak. Because God's word does not have that law. So question number two. What does Paul mean by stumbling block? And we'll answer this in two parts. We'll answer our third question sort of in between and in the middle of answering this question. But what does Paul mean by stumbling block? He begins to explain that in the verse we've already read, verse 7. Let me read verse 7 again. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He tells us in verse 9 not to be a stumbling block. To stumble is the trip. You've all stumbled before. To stumble is to trip. To stumble is to fall. This kind of stumbling that Paul has in mind is a stumbling that, that hurts you. 
It hurts you spiritually. It injures you spiritually. And Paul summarizes how that was happening here. Some of these Corinthians, they maybe many of them grew up going to these temples. They grew up offering this meat to idols. That was their former association with idols. They had baggage that they brought into their Christianity. And so when they eat the meat, they eat it, what does Paul say? As really offered to an idol. They thought, you don't understand, this meat was really offered to an idol. So I am eating meat that has really been offered to an idol. And when they do that, their consciences, Paul said, they are defiled. So by stumbling, Paul means they are violating their conscience. That's what he means by stumbling. Because of their former association with idols... When they eat this meat, they eat it as meat that was really offered to an idol. And when they do that, their conscience, Paul says, it is defiled or it is violated. They're violating their conscience. You, you feel like something is wrong and you do it anyway. That's violating your conscience. I don't understand maybe why it's wrong. Not everybody says it's wrong. I don't see in God's word yet where he says it isn't wrong. I just feel like it's wrong. You know what this is like. Well, when you feel like something is wrong and you do it anyway, that is defiling your conscience. That is stumbling. That is wounding your conscience is another word he will use. And it's very dangerous. Which is why Paul does not advise them. Just get over it. Push through it. Violating your conscience is very dangerous. And it doesn't matter if you have a strong conscience or a weak conscience. Violating it is serious business. Martin Luther wrote, To act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Romans 14, 23 Paul was writing to the Romans who were in a very similar situation, trying to sort out what to do with Christian liberties. And he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. It was a very similar situation. You had, you had people who there who were eating meat, but it was going against their conscience. So they had doubts. They doubted whether or not this was really okay to do, whether God was really okay with them doing this. But other Christians were doing it, so they were going ahead and doing it anyway. And so Paul writes, as whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. This isn't they understand God's word. They have the light of God's word. They, they see that it's not unlawful. They see that it is a liberty, that it is a freedom that they have. And so from faith now they're eating this meat. No, no, no. That's not where they are. They have tons of doubt. Their conscience is telling them this is wrong. If they eat, that's condemning. What does he mean? It's sin. It's sin to violate even a weak 
conscience. Paul writes, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If your faith in Jesus Christ is not at the bottom of something that you're doing, it's sin. Justin Taylor, he writes, for example, if a person is taught and comes to believe that wearing lipstick is a sin and then wears lipstick, that person is sinning. The sin resides not in the lipstick, obviously, right? But in the intent to act against what one believes to be the command of God. Do you see that? If your conscience is telling you this is wrong and you do it anyway, then you are rebelling what you feel and think in your heart is a sin against God. Therefore, your intent is rebellion. It's sinful. It's not the thing it's your intention. It's your heart. That's what was happening in Corinth. That is how they were stumbling. When Paul says stumbling, he means violating your conscience. Now, there is more on why that's such a big deal. And Paul will address that when we get to verses 11 and 12. But I said in the middle of answering that question now, we've got to go to our third question. Because verse 8 answers our third question, which is, what rights is Paul talking about? He says, take care that your own rights do not become a stumbling block. Well, read verse 8. Food will not commend us to God we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So remember the instruction. The instruction is take care that your rights do not become a stumbling block to the weak. So according to verse 8, verse we just read, what is it that the Corinthians have a right to do or not to do? Eat the meat. That's the right they have. To eat the meat or not eat the meat. That's what he says in verse 8. You are no worse off if you don't eat the meat, and you're no better off if you do eat the meat. It's not about the meat. It's inconsequential. In other words, you are free to eat the meat, or you are free to not eat the meat. I feel like I'm rhyming a lot. God's word has no law on this, is what he is saying in verse 9. There's no commandment here. You're not breaking one of God's laws, so it is between you and your conscience. So here's what this is. This is an area of Christian liberty. Liberty, by the way, is, I think, probably a better word to use over right. The word liberty, that's what's used in the King James Version and the New American Standard. 
version, eating this meat that had been offered to idols was not a right to demand as much as a liberty to enjoy. So that's the right that he's talking about. When you eat this meat, because you're free to eat this meat, take care that in doing that, you don't cause another Christian to stumble. That you don't cause another Christian who has a weaker conscience to violate their conscience. I mean, Paul is getting down to the nitty-gritty of loving your neighbor. We talk about loving one another. We talk about loving your neighbor. We know that we're called to love God and to love others, but sometimes we don't have a great idea of what that actually looks like. This is very practical, what Paul has to say. This is a way in the church that you will either love people or not love people. Will you or won't you, in the exercising of your rights, in the exercising of your liberties, will you be considering the consciences of other Christians? Not your conscience. That's usually where it stops, doesn't it? My conscience is clear. So what do you want me to do? Should I walk around and ask everybody what they think or what their conscience is? Right? We take it to a ridiculous extreme. I'm free in Christ. And what we mean by that is that we can exercise these liberties without any concern of other Christians and what their consciences might be telling them. But that's exactly like the jugular of what Paul is going after in this text. He's saying, no, that's not right. Take care. So let's put this together so far. Some Corinthians possessed knowledge that eating this meat was not good knowledge, that eating this meat, it was not inherently evil, and so their conscience left them free to eat. Others did not possess that same knowledge, and so their conscience did not yet permit them to eat. So Paul says in verse 9, to those whose consciences were clear and were therefore free to eat this meat that had been offered to idols, he says, take care. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, let's go back to our second question. Let's finish answering it. We'll need the help of verses 10 through 12. Second question again is, what does Paul mean by stumbling block? How were the strong causing the weak to stumble? We're understanding that's his instruction, and hopefully our hearts are being moved, and we want to follow this. We we don't want to cause others to stumble. Well, well, what is it that we do? What is it that they were doing exactly that was becoming a stumbling block? So here's how it works in verses 10 through 12. 
his explanation. Four, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. So you just picture this in your mind. So this is the strong, those whose conscience is permitting them to eat this meat. So he says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So he doesn't understand yet, this one who's watching you. He's a Christian, but he does not understand yet. He doesn't have the knowledge yet. His conscience is not enlightened yet. His conscience is not informed yet. It still feels wrong to him, but he's encouraged by seeing you, usually an older Christian, a more mature Christian, somebody who's been a Christian longer than he has, he's encouraged to dismiss his conscience. That's how this works. And so, verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. He reminds them who you're dealing with. This man whose conscience you are not considering, Jesus died for him. You could be destroying him. Because if you encourage him to violate his conscience, what happens when you violate your conscience? Becomes calloused. Becomes easier to do. If any of you have been caught up in a sin, and you can remember a day when you couldn't imagine sinning in that way. You can maybe even remember the first or second time that you sinned in that way and how terrible and horrible you felt afterwards. And then time 10 came and time 12 came and time 100 came and time 1,000 came. And maybe by God's grace, conviction and contrition broke through and you were grieved and you were sad over what you had done. And you look back and you couldn't believe how you got from point A to point B. How does that happen? By violating your conscience. By feeling and believe this is not right. This is wrong. I shouldn't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. And pushing through over and over and over again. That is how a Christian gets destroyed. So it's serious business that Paul is talking about here. Verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So if you didn't think it was a big deal, you think it's a big deal now. Because he traces this all the way to Jesus. You're sinning against Christ when you do this. There's one more verse. One more verse, verse 13. I want you to see the application of verse 13. This is, verse 13 is how Paul does verse 9. That's what verse 13 is. Verse 9, take care that you're right. Well, this is how Paul does it. Verse 
13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That's how he applies it. He may be exaggerating, he may not. I'm not sure. But his point is very clear. And he's careful how he says this. He doesn't say, you do this. Did you see how he changed and says, personally, this is what I'm willing to do. This is how I'm going to handle this. He knows, though, that those he's writing to, they have liberty. And liberty gets lost in legalism. He doesn't lay down a rule here. He doesn't say, this is what all you strong conscience Christians, this is what you must do. You must never eat meat again. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give them a hard rule. The rule is love. It's love. They must love their neighbor. They must love one another. They must be willing to sacrifice or give up temporarily or maybe even permanently, depending on the context, something that they're free to do, something that they may love to do, but if it would be a hindrance to the brothers and sisters, the Christians around them, then just give it up. What's more important at the end of the day? Exercising my liberty? Or loving someone? Well, he makes it clear. In conclusion, let's go back to Paul's main point. Let me read it again. Remember, it's in verse 9. Let me paraphrase. Take care that the exercising of your liberties does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For them, it was the eating of meat offered to idols. That was the area of Christian liberty for them that Paul is addressing. There was no rule in the Bible about it. So they were free to eat the meat or to not eat the meat. It was a matter of Christian liberty. There was no clear command to eat meat, and there's no clear condemnation not to eat the meat, and so your conscience must be your guide. And he encourages them, if they disagree over this, and their consciences are strong or weak, and some are okay, and others are not okay, he encourages those with a strong conscience who think it's okay to be considerate and loving and to take care that their exercising of their liberties does not hurt someone else. Or we don't have the same issue. As far as I know. I haven't heard that any of you have a beef with people eating beef that's been offered to an idol. That's not our thing. It sounds pretty weird when we read about it, doesn't it? Like, how's that even an issue? It's a no-brainer. Well, put yourself in their shoes. But we have our own issues. I'm sure you're aware of some of them. These are areas of Christian liberty where we are 
free to disagree and may disagree. And your conscience may tell you one thing and my conscience may tell me another thing. But there is not hard, fast rules about this in God's word. Things like alcohol. So I think I'll talk more about it in just a minute. Education. There's no rule, you know, about how your children must be educated. We shouldn't take and draw hard lines. But Christians do, don't they? I remember when my, in our family, we've, we've done just about every form you can think of. Public education. Homeschool. We tried. <laughs> it was like four months, I think. Private school. Now we lock them in our basement until they're 35. I mean, it's your conscience. It's what you think is right. But Christians will say. I remember at least my mindset when, when, when we were first married, my wife and I, was public education. Absolutely, because I wanted my kids to be missionaries. That was my mindset. But that changed. My convictions changed. My conscience changed. Some of you have been in different places when it comes to these areas of Christian liberty. Naturopathy. Political party. Yeah, see, why are some of you giggling? Because you know what I'm talking about. Vaccinations, economics, dating, no giggles, <laughs> TV and electronics, social media, smoking, tattoos, <laughs> and so we have disagreement over some of these things, but they are areas of Christian liberty where it needs to be left up to our conscience and we must love one another across our disagreements. That's the point that Paul is making. So I will say a little more. I do think alcohol is a, is a pretty controversial, even still, area of disagreement but it is an area of Christian liberty among Christians. Some of you, when it comes to alcohol, you have a weak conscience. And some of you have a strong conscience. Those of you who have a strong conscience, you know that alcohol is not inherently evil. And you know that it is not a sin for a Christian to partake of alcohol. And you are correct. It would be a sin to drink alcohol to the point of drunkenness. It would be a sin to disregard and disobey the laws of our society regarding alcohol. Romans 13. It would be a sin for us to do what Paul is talking about in this very text and to disregard the consciences of others. But some of you are here, you have a strong conscience when it comes to alcohol. 
You understand it's accurate. You understand what God's word says and what God's word doesn't say. Some of you have a weak conscience. You've maybe heard before or you've heard what I just said, but for you, it's just not right. It may be based on your history. It may be based on your disposition. It may be based on your family. But for whatever reason, your conscience, it does not allow you to drink alcohol. It would be wrong for you to drink alcohol and to violate your conscience. And it would be wrong for someone with a strong conscience to say, come on. It's not a big deal. Show me in Scripture where it says that drinking alcohol is a sin. Now, to reason and to talk, that's one thing. But to try to push someone to push their way through their conscience is wrong, Paul is saying. You then become a stumbling block. And you teach people to disregard their conscience. So these areas of Christian liberty now, it cuts both ways. Romans 14, we see that it wasn't just the stronger conscience Christians that were having issues. It was the weaker conscience Christians that were having issues. And Paul has to write to them in Romans 14 and says, okay, you're judging the other and you're despising the other. And this is what happens in Christian liberty. So those who felt free to eat the meat or those who may feel free to drink alcohol despise those who do not. That means they look down on them teetotalers, legalists, don't understand God's word as well as I understand God's word. It's despising. It's what was happening here in Corinth. It's what was happening to the Romans. But it cuts the other way. And Paul says to the weaker brothers as he was writing to in the book of Romans, he says, and you do not judge. Do not judge those who were eating the meat, or in our context, those who would be drinking alcohol. How could they do that? Don't they know? I would never do that. Do they not know what that can lead to? Do they not know how many lives have been ruined by that? Do you hear what the, the kind of talk that's coming on now and where this is going? It's very judgmental. But this is an area of Christian liberty. Now specifically, again, here in Corinth, it was not so much a problem, at least that we know of, with the weaker brothers, but it was a problem with the stronger brothers. They were despising, they were looking down, and they were flaunting their liberties and exercising them in a way that was becoming a stumbling block to the weak who were among them. So ask yourself the question, what is more important, your liberty or love? At the end of the day, what is more important to you? Sinclair Ferguson writes, we are given liberty in Christ in order to be servants of others, not in order to indulge our own preferences. Martin Luther wrote, A Christian man 
is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Free from and free to. Free to what? To love God and to love others. We must not forget what Paul has already taught us in this chapter, what our knowledge is for. It is for loving God and loving others. Let me give you three applications or encouragements very quickly in light of this text. Number one, inform your conscience. That can be drawn out of this text. The importance to inform your conscience. Read the word. That's it. Read the word and pray as you read the word because you want your sense of what is pleasing or displeasing to God to be accurate. You want to move closer and closer to the heart of God. You want to be okay with what God is okay with and you want to be offended by what God is offended with. So inform your conscience. Number two, do not violate your conscience. You may see Or acknowledge that you have a weak conscience in some ways. Well, go back to number one. Inform your conscience. Enlighten your conscience. Read God's word. But in the meantime, do not violate your conscience. I can remember a day when I believed sincerely that drinking alcohol was absolutely a sin. It was wrong. Then I can remember coming to the understanding that it was not wrong to drink alcohol, but my conscience still did not allow me to do it. And then I can remember getting to the point where not only did I believe that it was not wrong to drink alcohol, but my conscience had freed me to be able to drink and enjoy alcohol. But it would have been wrong for me too, when my conscience forbid it, it would have been wrong to defile my conscience, to disregard it. So number two, do not violate your conscience. And then number three, again, the main point of this text, take care not to disregard the conscience of others. So ask yourself the question, how will you take care that your knowledge or your liberties don't become stumbling blocks to your fellow Christians? That means you need to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't it? You need to know them. And if you know that certain things could hurt them, if you know that they're wrestling with sins that maybe you don't wrestle with, if you know that their conscience is not clear in a way that maybe your conscience is, how will you respond? How will you take care that your liberties do not become stumbling blocks to your fellow Christians? The knowledge that God has given you, the knowledge God gives me, is so that I may love Him and others more deeply, to have greater affection for God and for others, and to love Him and others more fully, which gets to action, which results in the building up of His church Paul is after, again, full heads and full hearts. Speaking of your conscience, how is yours today?
How is your conscience? What is it that you are believing or saying or doing and your soul is screaming out at you? This is not right. This is wrong. What are you ignoring? What are you not paying attention to? Maybe some of you are here today and you're not a Christian. And you know it. And God has given you a conscience. And I wonder if when you're around Christians or when you hear a sermon or when you hear the gospel preached or maybe even right now in this room, if there is not a smoke alarm going off in your heart right now that is intended to turn you to Christ, that is intended to turn you away from your sin and away from going your own way to turn around and to follow Jesus. And to hear and to know through the gospel that you may come to Jesus. You may follow him. You may have your sins forgiven. Every one of them. No matter what you've done. You may be washed completely clean. And you may be brought into an eternal relationship with God. And that is made possible because Jesus came. And he lived and he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead in the place of a sinner just like you. So that a sinner just like you could come to Jesus and be reconciled to him. Do not ignore your conscience if your conscience is leading you to Christ now.